Hello. Yes, that's right, Pop Pickers. It's another episode of the Album Years with myself and my colleague Tim Bowness. And uh, after our marathon 1977 episode, well, in fact, it ended up being four episodes. Mm-hmm. We're hoping this one's going to be a little bit more succinct, aren't we? We're doing night. We're jumping forward ten years. We've done this before, haven't we? Where we've sort of gone exactly, yeah, ten years forwards or back, sort of to see how things have changed in a, in the space of a decade. And I think it's fair to say that the jump from the seventies to eighties tends to be quite a big. It's quite a big change, isn't it? Uh, probably more so than I mean. If you imagine, if you jump between two thousand and five and two thousand and fifteen, you probably wouldn't find that much difference would you in the musical climate true but going from 70s to 80s it's a big change isn't it as i suppose it would be 60s to 70s too wouldn't it so 1987 i'm 19 this year Mm -hmm. so i'm still very much buying records the day they come out i'm very excited about new releases this year particularly from artists like prince uh but also some other artists too you know some really good mainstream uh, albums this year isn't there so mm. um well should we start off by talking about the prince record from this year sign of the times i remember hearing the single on the radio mm. um and thinking oh my god this he's completely reinvented himself again yeah. um with you know this being the first single off the record what's the record going to be like and of course it turned out to be this double album sprawling uh and i think a lot of people these days kind of see it as his i suppose purple rain is his most commercially successful record but a lot of people see this as his great artistic masterpiece don't they they do i mean it's not my favorite album of prince when i what's I your think- fave I really like Parade, Parade actually. I thought too. Parade was, yeah. was amazing. Yeah. And um, I was very keen on Around the World in a Day as well. And actually his Batman soundtrack, I think, is, is incredibly underrated. But this is better than that, isn't it? I mean, this, he's in a, there's no question that he's on a roll here, isn't he? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a little too sprawling and diffuse for my taste. But when it's good, it's amongst the best work he's ever done. And the title track, it felt quite revolutionary at the time and still sounds very powerful yeah i mean the bravery to release uh, as a first single off your record you're you're kind of this like arena rock star by this time i mean arguably he's the biggest star in the world at this mm. moment uh, alongside michael jackson madonna and springsteen he's definitely in the he's in the big four isn't he yeah and the confidence to be able to release as the first single from your record a track which is little more than a beatbox yeah um a guitar and a voice and doesn't even have what you might call a, a chorus to it. I mean, it's like a, it's, it's like a slogan song, a sloganeering song. It's, it's political. It's talking about AIDS. It's talking about the space race. It's very topical mm. um, as the title would imply. It's pretty bold to release this as a first single, isn't it? But he had a history of doing this because the first single off of Parade, of course, was Kiss. And we'd yeah. never heard anything like that before. And then the first single he released off Purple Rain, When Doves Cry. It's like, where's the bass? You know, mm. where's the rest of the arrangement? Yeah. And he was very good at that, wasn't he? Stripping things down, but still making it seem somehow, you know, important and revolutionary. But this was like a state of the nation address as well. It's like lyrically, it was more his... Marvin Gaye, what's going on to a certain extent, wasn't it? Yeah, and then I remember I remember buying the album the day it came out and taking it home and just being, first of all, dazzled by 
all of the kind of bases that he mm. touches on this record, even within the first side. I mean, you've got Sign of the Times, which we've already talked about. Then you've got Playing in, Playing the Sunshine, which is this kind of psychedelic thing. Then you've got Housequake, which is like hip hop, funk. And then you've got the Ballad of Dorothy Parker mm. at the end of the uh, end of the side, which is probably my favourite track on the record. Which yeah, is, mine too. It's just... Again, it's it's kind of a singer-songwriter sensibility, but it's not like any singer-songwriter thing you've ever heard before, is it? Again, it's this very kind of almost cheap-sounding beatbox, mm. this kind of queasy I keyboard. Say, queasy is the word I always use for this track. Yeah. But then this great lyric and this kind mm. of great storytelling lyric. And, of course, Name Checks Joni as well, which yeah. we always like, yeah. And then the record carries on like that, doesn't it? I mean, it just goes or shoots off in all these different directions. But I think he's one of those artists, you know, that everything he does is just going to end up sounding like him. So he he can pull off something um, this diverse, and but it all still sounds like it comes from the same well, mm. which it does in this case, Prince. But so, what is this one of those records that you would say is the quintessential double album that would have made a better single album? I mean, for me, yes, because I don't think it's particularly disciplined and I don't think it's particularly coherent. I think what you want really with these albums is that they are absolutely chaotically insane or you want focused. And it isn't quite either. Parade, I think, is very, very focused. There's an album around the world in the day, again, has a has a real atmosphere. I can kind of get a handle on those and Purple Rain as well. But this I can't necessarily Okay, I mean, I have to say I love it, you know. But as as I think we discussed on previous episodes, I I kind of we were talking about Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, the Joni sure. album from '77. I kind of like the fact that these entries exist in the catalogs oh, of yeah, these artists, yeah. you know, where they're big, sprawling, self indulgent, perhaps not as um, accessible. Not every track is perhaps what you might say top tier. But there's a sense of searching and there's a sense of sense of experimentation. And I kind of enjoy the records on that basis. But having said that, it's fair to say that a lot of people would consider Sign of the Times to be his his defining uh, masterwork. I I think partly because it obviously shows almost all aspects of his talent and it is the big statement. And quite often people will opt for the big statement as the definitive and it's also timing, isn't it? He was the hippest, yeah. coolest, biggest rock star in the world at that moment. And he could have released something sure. disappointing. And the fact that he didn't, the fact that he actually didn't rest on his laurels, he made something that is arguably as experimental and radical as anything he'd, he'd done and anything he would do. At the time when, you know, it's that Beatles thing, you release Sergeant Pepper when, you know, the world are looking in your direction. Yeah, there's something bold about doing that rather than doing playing it safe to release something this bold, this experimental, this eclectic at the moment when the the whole eyes of the music world are focused on you and expecting, expecting you yeah. to release something revolutionary. I think that was part of it. I think expecting expectation that, you know, sometimes our perception of music is based on our expectation of what we want it to be. And I guess with Sign of the Times, the the title track, I thought was bold, revolutionary, sounded incredible. This was 
something I was expecting from the whole album. In a way, I suppose what I wanted was for the whole album to be that brave, that radical. And I maybe only found it on a few tracks. You know, oh, okay. I mean, Dorothy I th- Parker being one. I, I think it is. I think it is you know, all that radical. Kiss, I thought, was a great yeah. opening gambit for Parade. And the album didn't disappoint me in a way. It was as strange as I was expecting. Purple Rain was as grand as I was expecting. So I think it's partly my fault, not the album's fault. It was a certain expectation I had in my head. I remember around this time, Susan the Banshees released an astonishing single, Peekaboo, which was one of the most radical things they ever did, which I adored. But the album, which was probably perfectly good, didn't match what my dreams for the album were based on the single. Okay, I think that's a bit unfair on Sign of the Times. I think it is pretty much as radical as that all the way through. Just perhaps some tracks not to your personal taste. Yeah. But I mean, tracks like Housequake, It, Hot Fang. It's an amazing record. It's an amazing record. I I still think it sounds great. And of course, one of the other interesting things about this period of Prince is that the albums that he released during this time are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what he was actually Mm. recording in the studio. And I I don't know if you have the deluxe edition of the album, but there's like... There's like two, three hours of other songs that he recorded. So it could have been any number of albums in a way. Well, in fact, he reconfigured the album several times. At one point, it was going to be released under a pseudonym, Camille. I mean, yeah. If I Was Your Girlfriend, it's another amazing mm. track on there, sung in his Camille voice. And uh, then he reconfigured it to be another album, I think, called Paradise Garden or something, I forget. And he delivered it to the record label as a three LP set, and they said no. Mm. somebody would say no to Prince that's pretty brave <laughs> anyway um, and he went away and he re-edited it into the 2LP version that we know but there were so many great tracks that fell by the wayside and um, a lot of those came out in this deluxe edition which is one of the few examples of a deluxe edition I think that kind of justifies the uh, you know the the, the term There's well a quite of- a lot of his deluxe editions have copious studio cuts yeah. that are as good as anything that got on the album yeah so I, I think that's it i think you know this was a selection of a potential many selections right so let's go through some of the other big mainstream records the tango in the night fleetwood mac uh in excess kick michael jackson one of the other big four megastars mm-hmm. in the world at that time released bad which i think kind of held up you know Held yeah. up his quality stand. I mean, it, to follow Thriller is like a uh, you're on a hiding to nothing in a way to follow up the most successful sure. of all time. But he pr- pretty much did it, I think, with Bad. Well, uh, certainly commercially, I think, did it. And, it's a, and, and it's in terms of its impact on the culture as well. I mean, every Jackson single and video was an event. Yeah, and pretty much every track on this album was a single. <laughs> yes, yeah. And was a video. Uh, so to be able to pull that off was quite extraordinary. George Michael's first solo album, Faith. Here we've got an artist that's come from a boy band with all the baggage that you would associate with coming from a boy band and managing to reinvent himself as a serious adult artist, adult orientated mm. artist, which uh, a few people have pulled off since. Most recently, Harry Styles, of course, has pulled yeah. it off. But I think the time he did it, he was probably the first person to ever do it, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I prefer what he did later, but I think, in, interestingly enough, of course, Faith. I thought you were going to say you prefer what he did with Wham for a minute. Then. I prefer what he Which did with Wham. Which would have been a surprise I mean, to me. Yeah. I, I, I'm all there to subvert the expectation. Faith, of course, had a strong Prince influence, did yeah. it not? The title track. Yeah. I mean, what I was saying, I, I kind of preferred what Michael went on to do with the likes of Older and so on, where yes. know, there was some wonderful stuff in the early 90s, Jesus to a Child and so on, you know, where he showed himself as 
a writer of rare sensitivity. So I think yeah. he was always, you know, quite a sophisticated... Praying for time, yeah. Artist, artist, yeah. yeah. Uh, we got Document, R.E.M. I think we maybe touched on R.E.M. before on the show. I've never understood R.E.M. I've, I've never understood the appeal. Um, I know they're amazing. Just pass me by. You you kind of like some of their albums, but yeah, not all. I, I mean, I, you know, with Zarnia, one of my favourites is Up. One of the, I think from 1998, one of the most hated... REM albums. I'm um, guessing an album like Document wouldn't have been the sort of thing you you would have liked. They're more, not, so, more sort of a, an alternative guitar band at this point. Yeah, right? I mean, there were, you know, quite a lot of these sort of bands around at the time, 10,000 Maniacs, REM, this kind of new Green American yeah. indie yeah. sound. And um, I didn't mind it, but I couldn't get very excited about it. Although I did buy a few REM albums later and I quite liked how they kind of challenged what their audience wanted from them. And they did take some creative risks later in the career, even Automatic for the People. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. It's an album that I got a lot of time for. I think for me, it's the jingle jangle sort of indie guitar thing didn't particularly... Well, I, have, I say that, I love the Smiths, you know, but mm. but then I I guess I kind of related more to, to Morrissey's voice and lyrics and also Johnny Marr's guitar style seemed to be so ridiculously eclectic yeah. and diverse and... I didn't really necessarily get that from R.E.M. Well, I think at that stage, and we're probably going to discuss it later, I mean, the Smiths' music was considerably more diverse than R.E.M.'s music at this stage. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think Johnny Marr was, was versatile. Morrissey, love him or loathe him, has an extremely strong presence as a vocalist and a lyricist. And, you know, I think Andy Rourke as well, great player. Why have you put The Return of Bruno by Bruce Willis in this list? <laughs> Just because it was released in 1987. I thought we needed to mention The Return of Bruno, which I think is, you know, it was, it was, it was a, an important cultural okay. moment. Whitney Houston released her debut album this year. Obviously a, a massive megastar to be. You too released The Joshua Tree. I mean, this is a bit like Prince. This is another example of a band where kind of all eyes are on them. And it's interesting mm-hmm. because this is the first album I think I'm writing saying this would have been the first album they would have been releasing post Live Aid, where they did make quite an impact on the day. Perhaps not the level yeah. of Queen, but they they were one of the bands that really came out of Live Aid with their reputation elevated to another level. And interesting, the Joshua Tree, the first album they released after Live Aid, kind of lived up to the expectation. I think it's a great record. I'm not mm-hmm. the biggest U2 fan. I can kind of take or leave a lot of their, their records. But this is a brilliant sort of time, their time has come record, isn't it, for you two? And of course, we've got Eno coming back as producer, but and also Daniel, Daniel Lenoir, as well. Lenoir, giving them that extra textural element. But it's one of those albums where it feels like every song was a single uh, again. Every mm. song was almost like an instant classic. Think of With or Without You and Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, Streets Have No Name, Bullet the Blue Sky. Yeah. I can still remember. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard the album for many years, but I can still remember almost every track. It's a strong record. I mean, I, I, I think as well it's more streamlined, in its own way, it's more streamlined and focused than Unforgettable Fire. I probably prefer Unforgettable Fire as an overall album experience, but Joshua Tree is where that combination of songwriting and sounds really sort of, you know, hits its highest point. I think they're also... 
you know, you might disagree with me. It also feels like they're letting their inner rocker sort of out a bit more on this record. Well, particularly one, the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I'm going to come to in this episode is how, for whatever reason, one of the bands that I think are a major influence on 1987, Led Zeppelin. I think Led Zeppelin, the shadow of Zeppelin suddenly, and I think there was a compilation. I think it was, one of, it was a CD age compilation that to a certain extent, brought Zeppelin back into the consciousness or people realised quite how good they were but I can hear it in so many bands this year and they were attempting to be the biggest rock band in the world on this there was a different motivation behind this album and they pulled it off and yeah. they pulled it off yeah so I, I think again it's uh, as what I was saying earlier it's almost like a band whose time has come and they're rising they're rising to the challenge and, and delivering arguably you know their greatest album until that point at least their most most kind of cohesive yeah. and complete statement artistic statement and, and as you say i think there were kind of three universal killer singles as well and then the final record we have in the mainstream section and interesting enough you wouldn't normally expect this to be in the mainstream section because it's it's marillion but they were they were a mainstream band at this point mm-hmm. weren't they they had broken through with misplaced childhood their previous record they'd had a number two single they'd had a number one album at least in the uk they were a mainstream band, weren't they? So Clutching Its Straws was a was a was the fourth album they'd released. It's the last one with Fish. I think it's a great record. I think it's probably my favourite of, of the Fish era records. Mm-hmm. Are you a fan too? Yeah, it was my favourite Marillion album, full stop. And I think by this stage, they have lost all of the early influences. This is a contemporary 1980s conceptual rock band with heart. And they do pull it off. You know, they've completely reinvented themselves in certain ways while not betraying the ambition and not betraying, I suppose, the progressive influences that were at the forefront when they started. But I think it's very strong, you know, and I think as as a band of players as well, there's just some really nice textual guitar playing from Steve Rothery. Mm. Um, Kelly is a very sympathetic support. You know, there's nothing excessive or inappropriate on this and i think that from a lyrical and and vocal point of view fish has completely found his distinctive yeah. voice i think you're right they've, they've lost a lot of the early gaucheness that they had both lyrically and musically and uh, they just sound like marillion at this point and in many ways this is an album that sets that although they they replace the singer and from here on in it would be a different singer this is kind of where the marillion sound is is complete Yes. Um, everything that they would go do going forward from here kind of has its roots in for me in this album even more so than misplaced childhood and i think that you know the trad prog element the, the only bits in there you can hear perhaps the influence of the overarching concepts of pink floyd and some of the textures of gilmore but you know i hear at times even Joni mitchell hajira and some of the guitar playing it's not I think Fish was also quite influenced by her mm. as a lyricist too, wasn't it? Wasn't mm. it? Yeah. But again, you sort of put provisionally put this list together, Tim, which I've added to and amended mm. slightly. But but one category you've really sh- shone a spotlight on for this year <laughs> is goth. Yeah. Um, and th- this kind of was the era of goth, and and um, you know, goth had been around for a while. You think of the early Cure records, but goth had kind of broken through in a way to the mainstream around this time yeah in fact funny enough the cures album from this year which i love kiss me kiss me mm-hmm. kiss me is another sprawling double album is 
or at least has got aspects of some of their their more joyous mm-hmm. uh, music. In fact, the first single from the album, Why Can't I Be You, is a kind of big joyous stomp, isn't it? But at the same time, you've got artists like Fields of the Nephilim emerging, which is almost like comedy goth. And I quite like <laughs> mm. I quite like Fields of the Nephilim, but it's ludicrous. It's it's taking the more comic book aspects uh, of goth, but it's fun. It's it's cartoony. Uh, it's fun. I bought Dawn Razor at the time. I still quite have a kind mm. of fondness for it. But talking of ludicrous, there's none more ludicrous, of course, than Dead Can Dance, and I say yeah. that in the best possible sense <laughs> of the word. Uh, within the realm of the Dying Sun, their third album. I'm sure we must have talked about this band before. Oh yeah, they are so so over the top that they risk everything in falling mm. flat on their face, but they completely pull it off for me. And this, for me, this is um, this is one of their two masterpieces, I think. This one and the following record, The Serpent's Egg, the okay. two peak period Dead Can Dance records. See, for me, it was always Spleen and Ideal and Within the Realm of the Dying Sun. Those are the two that I well, similar, really like. Well, similar era, yeah. Um, I think it's where they're finding their voice. You know, Spleen and Ideal, to a certain extent, has more in common with the kind of goth post-punk roots it's still within the guitars, realm of a dying sun is casting there's it off no guitars more. yeah and then guitars have gone yeah yeah and post this they become something else altogether yeah um but i really like this and again a very cinematic brooding influence throughout um brendan's very serious scott baritone, baritone. um and certainly some of the most um, ambitious lyrics in popular music history. But you know what? This is, the, this is, again, time and time again, we talk about this. Sometimes when you reach for the stars, you know, if you can pull it off, the ridiculousness is just, just makes it all the more enrapturing. And, and I think even a progressive rock band at their most pretentious couldn't have come up with a title like Within the Realm... Well, say that, John Anderson probably could have done. <laughs> Within the Realm of a Dying Sun. But it's the fact that the sun is dying as well. Yeah. It's very yeah. goth, isn't it? You know. Well, I think, I think the imagery, in a way, is why it ties in with goth. But you are entirely right that, you know, in some ways it's tangential. And, of course, there's always a, there's a dark atmosphere. And it's interesting, isn't it, 1987? Because what we've had is we've had Live Aid, we've had 86. There's almost been this kind of jolly up-tempo, artificial, loads of money, 80s. And yet 87 is where goth hits pay dirt. And as you say, it's been around for a while because, you know, I think 4AD are in some ways the unsung champions of goth because Bauhaus released early works on the label and Birthday Party, I think, were a huge influence on it. And those bands were popular and those bands were influential. And again, I liked those bands, but for whatever reason... It suddenly comes to the fore. I mean, Sisters of Mercy as well, I think, have their day in the sun. Yeah, this I love year. this record. Floodland, which I think is a superb record. And what I a agree. strange what a strange hookup that was. Jim Steinman yes. of, of Bad Out of Hell. And we talked about Bad Out of Hell on the on the 77 episode. What a strange hookup that was. I mean, to get Jim. But in actual fact, when you hear the record, it's like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because there's something about Goth that is very cinematic, kind of very cartoony, large scale or potentially. And here you have Jim Steinman taking the sort of 
melodrama of the sister mm-hmm. sister of mercy that was always there and suddenly making it sound like like a trevor horn production you know yeah or a jim steinman production to be fair because he'd been doing it for longer than trevor and um th- this corrosion what a great what a great single that is well what i like about the whole album is you know there are exceptions of course 1959 the piano ballad but it's massive it has this massive yeah drum sound this massive guitar sound these choral massive reverbs vocals obviously yeah. the choral backing vocals are absurd but i adore them but what i also think is very clever about this album is there's actually not very much on a track if you actually listen to a track sometimes it sounds like there are only two or three instruments on it they might be overdubbed to the nth degree but there's not very much. And that's one of the reasons I think why it is so massive and so direct. Okay. You've got this kind of overwhelming avalanche of noise. But if you listen, there aren't fiddly details or fiddly instrumentation inside it. It's a really sort of direct guitar riff, choral, drum, Eldritch's voice holding the central ground. So, I mean, this is definitely a peak era for the use of reverb, isn't it? And I wonder if a lot of it is down to that. It's like the Dead Can Dance album's like that too. There's probably not a lot there, mm. but there's so much reverb. Everything is drenched in reverb. Everything yeah. sounds massive. Everything sounds like it's beaming in from the other end of a stadium or an aircraft hangar. And, of course, it gives everything this incredible weight and depth and size. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the mid-'80s obviously was was a period when people were using and abusing reverb, not always in, you know, in the best way, but when they did, when people got it right, I think reverb was a, became a real sort of part of the fabric of the music of the eighties. Yeah. I think it's why a lot of people think a lot of people who love seventies music, they don't like eighties music because they think all gated reverbs, stadium reverbs. But I think there were some records that really uh, were defined. I mean, I think of an album like Seeds of Love by Tears yeah. for Fears or Songs from the Big Chair. Without the reverb, those albums wouldn't be the albums they are. And I think that's certainly true of Sisters of Mercy and Dead Can Dance here, isn't it, too? Yeah. And, and there's a real confidence with this. I mean, I really like the first and last and always as well, but this takes it up a notch without losing any of the band's qualities. Let, let's go to a band that, that we've got in this category that certainly were not playing up the cartoon mm-hmm. joke aspect. We've talked about Swans before on the yeah. show. Children of God, they made two records kind of back to back, one under the name of Skin and one under, under the name of Swans. Mm-hmm. One of which was a sort of ambient orchestral torch song record and one of which was more, more like their traditional pummeling drums and guitar record. But actually, even that, that simplifi- that's mm. oversimplifying things because even Children of God, the Swans record, has these beautiful ballads with string textures and, again, a lot of use of reverb. This is Swans in transition because they've come from being... I mean, I think when we talked about Cop, I described it as the most negative music I have ever heard in my life, and I stand mm. by that. Cop, the album by Swans from, I think, 83 or 84, is the most nihilistic, negative record I have ever heard in my life. And I'm including Throbbing Gristle's second annual report in that. Mm. Um, and I love it. But this is Swans coming out into the sunshine a bit more, relatively speaking, is, isn't yeah. it? There, there's more space in the music. The production is a little bit more expensive sounding. It's not as nihilistic. But this was great for me. I mean, it's possibly my favourite Swans album because it has the extremes. I think it goes from that atonal attack of sound to these gorgeous jarbo 
interludes. And, no, and actually, it reminded me at the time of a more extreme Dead Can Dance in some ways, because I think the Jarbo yeah. moments have that poetic, otherworldly quality, which Lisa Gerrard definitely brought to Dead Can Dance. And so that was what I found so entrancing about this and why it's perhaps my favourite album by them, that, you know, you are being slapped across the face with a hammer and then all of a sudden you're being soothed. But even when you're being soothed, there's a darkness in that music. Yeah, I mean, there is a sense that Michael Jaira and, and Brendan Perry are kind of two sides of the same coin, the sort of dark and light aspects yeah. of... They both sing in a similar register. But everything Michael Jaira sings sounds like a, a funeral eulogy or something. And it's it, he's just got one of those voices. And this is one of those records where I think that early nihilistic guitar pummel, drum pummel, and the more considered textured chamber orchestral pieces are in nice balance on this record. Mm. And it's a long record. It's a double album, 70 yeah. minutes. One of my favourite bands of all time, Tim, which is a band you introduced me to when you handed me, very soon after we met, you handed me a copy of Slabs, yeah. Smoke Rings. And I was completely smitten from, from the moment I heard it because it's a mixture of brutal industrial music and funk. Yeah. Finger pop, bass <laughs> finger pop in funk. But it's brutal. And in many ways, it's like Swans because it's, yeah. again, Stephen Drace sings a little bit like Michael Gyra, similar voice, similar vocal range. But it's Swans with James Brown's back at a rhythm section. Yeah, or a certain ratio. Or a certain ratio. Yeah, I mean, and I, like you, was actually drawn to this where it is, it's industrial level noise but with a real popping dance sensibility. It's quite an unusual combination, and they do pull it off. Completely. And the album this year, Dissension, also has aspects of pure noise music, which, again, I've always loved too. So, And also free jazz is in there too. Mm. There's honking saxophones and trumpets. It's a real smorgasbord of, of different styles coming together. And it gives, just as you say that, tells you what a lie it is when people say well the 80s of course they weren't experimenting with genres they weren't experimenting with extremes it was all surface level stadium pop music or stadium rock music there were so many of these albums no, I think the opposite. bubbling under the surface. I think it was the such an exciting era. I think the 80s is probably the most experimental era of all in some senses. Uh, but you're right, you have to look beyond the, the mainstream. You have to look at the peripheries to find these kind of records. Um, and it, it, it is the fallout from punk because these kind of bands wouldn't have existed if punk hadn't happened, mm. you know. These are people with ideas. They're not great musicians, but they're people with ideas. Collision is a great word. The music sounds like it's colliding as well. It's so powerful and overpowering. It is a collision of funk, of noise, of industrial music, of free jazz, uh, of goth, all coming together in this incredibly unique sound. I've never heard anything quite like Slab. And it's a shame in a way they did, they weren't more successful. Like they mm. made one more record after this. And then I think they just gave up because it seemed like nobody was listening. Uh, but we were. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly some of the early No Man experiments, we were continually... Very Slab influenced, yeah. Was, well, and, and Swans as well, I think, were big. Yeah. Dead Can Dance to an extent as well. That it was playing with the extremes of noise and beauty. Mm. 
So let's move on from goth. I mean, just to just again to emphasize how much goth music there was around this year. We also had albums by Jesus and Mary Chain, Breathless, uh, The Mission, and Skinny Puppy. But let's move on to Electro Variations. My favourite Depeche Mode album was released this year, Music for yeah, Masses. Yeah, mine too. Uh, yeah. Black Celebration and Music for Masses are my two yeah. Depeche Mode albums. And again, is this a case where it's they're kind of at that point in transitioning and it's just the right balance for us? It is the right balance, but you know we were saying about certain years where certain genres suddenly appear everywhere. So when we were talking about mid-70s and the influence of, let's say, progressive or underground rock, you can actually hear in Johnny Cash's concept albums or The Carpenters. Going to goth, this is this is goth's year because one of the things about Black Celebration and Music for the Masses is it's a darker Depeche Mode. Mm. In some ways, it's operating in a not too dissimilar territory. You're right, but what's interesting about Depeche Mode is they had a history of releasing really dark singles. I'm thinking Blasphemous Rumours, I'm thinking mm-hmm. Master and Servant. And so that's quite a hard trick to pull off, isn't it? And the singles from this record, Never Let Me Down, yeah. uh, Behind the Wheel, uh, these are not what you would think of as obvious. I mean, you think this is the same band, that the first yeah. few singles, Just Can't Get Enough, New Life. It's slightly twee, and I don't mean that as a criticism, but that you listen to those records, they're quite, they're cute. Mm-hmm. They're cute, they're twee. Yeah. And six, seven years later... You've this band that have transitioned transitioned from releasing singles. I suppose it's the difference between Martin Gore's approach and Vince Clark's approach. Mm-hmm. Martin Gore always was more drawn. There was this slightly seedy S and M undercurrent, wasn't there? And I think of singles around this era like Stripped mm-hmm. uh, and Question of Lust. So they've had this succession of singles: Master of Master and Servant, Blasphemous Rumors, and this album is kind of encapsulating that aspect of what they do. And they, have, they would have a bigger record with the next record. Violator was their mm. really big record. But I like them just, at, like you, I like them just at this moment somehow. And there's also, again, quite a cinematic minor key quality to the compositions. And you can hear as well that they've been listening to people like Philip Glass as well. And Kenneth Gartsey, I think, has some kind okay, of... Okay, I don't hear that. But if you say that's that's, yeah. Interesting at the time, they were becoming massive in America, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Which, how you would never have predicted. How, would you have predicted that some kids from Basildon mm. making this kind of weird kind of S&M-y, pervy, electronic pop would... I mean, because to be fair, they'd struggled a little bit in the UK throughout the 80s. Mm. I think people had kind of decided that if they weren't going to do more of their cutesy pop, then we weren't going to be interested. But But... They found a lifeline in America, apparently, and became like a stadium band there yeah. long before they were a stadium band in the UK. And, you know, for me, they were reaching a mass market with, you know... Music, music for the masses. Yeah, but See, music of integrity. Yeah. And at this stage, they were still discovering themselves, I think, as well. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things. I think that by Violator, they found themselves. Yeah. Up to this point, they're still discovering what they can do, what they can be. Mm. And I think that's one of the exciting parts of this album. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I think once they got to Violator, they'd kind of created the archetype and everything after that has been kind of referenced back to this period in Mm. a way, hasn't it? Yeah. Much as I love some of the other albums after that. Pet Shop Boys. We love the Pet Shop Boys, don't we? Yeah. We love them. Who doesn't? 
I don't know. Does anyone not love Pet Shop Boys? Everyone loves Pet Shop Two Boys. Two million people. Actually, their second album. It's not my favourite. I think we, you and I both, Tim, both agree that they're for us, their imperial phase is going to happen with the next couple of records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Introspective and behaviour particularly. But, and uh, they've done wonderful stuff since then, but those two albums were where it was, this is the real deal. You know? Yeah, I mean, I love pretty much everything they've done, but those two albums are my favourites. And I think, as always, with Pet Shop Boys, I mean, you know, Tennant is a very good lyricist. I think he's got a very sweet and affecting voice. And I think one of the things that's interesting with Petra Boys is they're this electropop duo. And what they don't have, partly because Tennant has got this kind of likeable, almost Al Stewart singer-songwriter voice, they don't have that period affectation that, if you like, blights a lot of bands in the genre. It's a very natural voice, very good gift for melody. You know, these, this is somebody who's clearly schooled in pop song writing well he was he was a music critic wasn't he so he mm. was kind of a music nerd and actually there is a there is a sense that a lot of pet shop boys uh songs are them taking other bands other artists and kind of channeling them through their you know their prism to come out sounding exactly like the pet shop boys i mean for me for example on this album it's hard for me to imagine that rent the song rent <laughs> isn't Morrissey isn't referencing Morrissey because it's the sort of thing Morrissey I love you you pay my rent that seems mm. like a very Morrissey thing yeah. and I'll bet Neil Tennant was a fan of, of Morrissey at the time I was listening I to would, Morrissey I would think so I mean the thing is there was always a depth and a melancholy even when they had their brashest yeah. singles and this album I think is this the one with King's Cross closing yes. it yeah. which is, is a beautiful um, piece of music mm. and of course their very first big their big breakthrough song West End Girls also had that sort of underlying sense of, of melancholia yeah uh, melancholia was big in 1987 apparently maybe you're right very maybe big. maybe it is a kind of fallout from, from Live Aid and, and you know there, there was a t- I always I always think of the 80s as sort of pre and post Live Aid because it came right in the middle of the 80s and it definitely did change the way people thought about what people expected from them musically. But as we see here, there's always a swing back and the pendulum always swings back in the opposite direction mm. too. If everyone's expected to make happy, clappy music, then let's provide them with the alternative. 